Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey everyone, I'm Boy George, and you're listening to the story behind the song on Consequence. Welcome listeners to the story behind the song. I'm your host, Peter Chotty of Creative Media. Boy George, music pioneer, fashion and cultural icon. George and his band Culture Club played starring roles in the frequently neon-infused music scene that transformed the sound of the early 1980s. Forming in 1981, George and the band kicked off an endless string of top 10 singles in the U.S., six to be exact, with its 1982 album Kissing to be Clever. And nowhere was lead actor Boy George more George than with his breakout track, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? A fearless confessional of love gone wrong and the pain that follows. And then, less than five years later, while they were still at the top of their game, Culture Club called it quits. Boy George certainly didn't, however. True to his words as being a karma chameleon, he continued with a successful solo and DJ career, but also expanded his palette beyond his fashion roots and into the worlds of acting, authoring, photography, visual artistry, and activism, serving as an inspiration to so many around the world. And now, to the delight of his fans, George and the band have reunited to showcase all of his and the band's hits on the road in Europe and in the U.S., my freewheeling interview with George is one of my favorites. He is a true artist in every sense of the word. I have no doubt you will deeply enjoy it. So take a listen as we dive deep into the story behind the song, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? with Boy George of Culture Club. Your first tour, George, for... How many years has it been? Since the pandemic, I think we've done one tour. So it's been a couple of years. It's not a long, long time. And you're going on tour with Rod Stewart. Oh, Rod Stewart is, yeah, that's a different thing altogether. We are a special guest of Rod Stewart, which is amazing. First gig is on Saturday. Quite thrilled about doing that because it's a big stadium gig and Rod Stewart fans, I think, are going to love us too because we sort of, you know, we, we go together well, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, that'd be fun to see. That's for sure. How often do you make it to the States? 
as often as I can. I mean, I never need an excuse to come to America. I love America. America's been amazing to us and to me. I mean, I lived in New York briefly a few years ago. And in fact, weirdly, I'm writing about it right now because I'm doing a book right now. I'm doing another autobiography, my third one. But the ultimate kind of like interesting sort of looking back at things that maybe I don't see in the same way as I did, you know, which is why it's going to be interesting talking about, do you really want to hurt me? Because, you know, obviously the story of that has changed and, you know, a song doesn't remain the same any more than a person remains the same because the song has to change with the person. If you let go of a moment, you know, emotionally, sometimes it can take years. But once you let go of that moment, the song starts to be about something different. You know, I mean, my performance of it now is is in a way more honest, I think. There's an honesty to it that wasn't there. Not that there was no honesty in the first place, but there's something about it now that's, I feel rawer, more beautiful. It's There's more truth in it, more truth about the pain I was feeling, not necessarily anything else, but like what I was doing to myself initially, I think, you know, because obviously no one breaks your heart, you let them. And it's also a bit of a weird, it's a sort of metaphor, isn't it? Being broken hearted. I mean, it can't stay forever or else you just never get anything done. <laughs> First of all, it's fascinating that you're doing your third autobiography. That's amazing. You were getting right into the song and how you interpret it differently today. And so before we get into the actual the kernel of how you created the song in the first place. Tell me about that, that your reinterpretation and how it's a different sort of thing to you when you sing it now. Well, I think you really want to hurt me was a statement very much about how I was feeling, you know, not only as a teenager, but it's sort of like most of my life, really. It's all been about like, they're doing it to me. They want to hurt me. And sort of not really having the tools to kind of understand what that was about necessarily do you understand it's never about one person you know people can yeah the song's about john but it's also about the guy before john there's a whole story so it's about and there was a bit of funny jealousy between the two of them <laughs> you wrote about me yeah. you write about me and it's a funny thing you know to think that obviously one of the smartest things john moss ever said to me was when you write a song, you're really writing about yourself. It kind of goes full circle and it comes back to you. And I think, not that I want to particularly give them a compliment, but actually it's true. It made me kind of go, oh, yeah. You know, so therefore you understand that it's, you know, a way of expressing what you're feeling. I mean, those songs in the early 80s, they were a diary. They were an absolute diary of what was going on. And I think whenever you've got something that's hurting you or something you're trying to work out, best time to write a song. I mean, there's no bad time to write a song, but like, you know, one of the best times is like when you're feeling hurt or like the song says, do you really want to hurt me? It's a question. I think over the years, I've kind of realized that I'm really talking to myself. I'm asking myself that question rather than sort of like, doing it in a, an accusing way about someone else. Because a lot of our songs, culture of songs, lyrically, they're very accusing. You know, Church of the Poison Mind, you know, Salimo, give me, it's all a bit dramatic. You know, I guess the way I write now, I write from a sort of loving perspective rather than a hurt perspective. I used to be like, everyone's out to get me, but I was like 21 or 22. I was yeah. a kid. Yeah. I was the kind of, some of it was instinctual, obviously, as all wisdom is, but... You look back and you think, oh, did you even know that you were getting so upset about, you know, and you were kind of missing the point yourself. I think that's the interesting thing that when you go and look back and trace your own footsteps about love, but also when you've got a song or songs that 
that address all of those things you were feeling and you go, oh my God, that's so hilarious. What was I thinking there? Why did I think like that? Because thinking is always a choice. You know, I think you get better songs, you know, when you when you think about things differently. I mean, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? It's not as necessarily a song I'd write now. You know, I would never say that. I'd probably find another way. But I think all great writing is simplistic. Whatever you, you know, all the songs you love, you go, oh, what about that one? And you go, Tonight, your mind completely, you know, you give your love so sweetly. It's just what it's, you're feeling. Do you believe that better art, for a lack of a better word, comes more from pain than from happiness? I think personally now, I would say great art comes from understanding what pain is and what happiness is and understanding that to a certain extent, yes, of course, people hurt you and then if you want to carry on feeling that feeling and you know, do it over a number of years, you know, the only person that's really having to deal with it is you. So once you understand, like, you know, like, for example, if you go to a therapist, okay, they're only ever going to teach you to think differently about what's wrong. So you are the problem and the solution right there in one foul swoop. But then you go, obviously, I was 21 years, 22 years old. I'm like, I didn't know any of this stuff. And if someone had told me, would I have listened? It's interesting, do you know what I'm saying? But I think that great art comes from great honesty, whether it's that you're in pain or that you wanna, you've known pain, like maybe you've had the parents that were a little bit like, and by the way, you know, I believe everyone's redeemable. So there's no one out there that I think, oh, you're a terrible human being, including John, you know, including anyone. You know, that's the interesting thing about that song. You know, if you can't learn from a lyric, give me time to realize my crime, let me love and steal. You know, it was really what was going on in a very abstract way. But I've, I've learned that I'm a poet and I've, I think I've got better in terms of, I mean, you know, I don't want to throw you right off your kilter, but I've done a song, a current song about John called Watching the Lotus Bleed. And it's a whole nother kind of take on the whole feeling thing. It's not from a point of view, like, do you really want to hurt me with some of you of, you know, right, this is happening right now. So I have to, you know, I have to tell the world because I'm, because you know, I'm young and I have to tell the world. But George, you were, t okay, so you were 21 years old and you were, and you were revealing your pain to the world, which is quite fearless to do. And you were doing it with your own style, which was not as, at least I would say in America, not as accepted as it was perhaps to where you were at that time. But do you, uh, how did you get that fearlessness in you? Well, I have to say something about the American thing because I think it's what I've always felt, you know, that because I was an import, it's not our problem, it's your lot over there. <laughs> that kind of like, look at the Brits have sent us. So I think rule number one in America, if you, I don't know, I ain't got the recipe on how you make Americans love you, right? But the fact is, Americans are people. So, you know, they see what they see and they either like it or don't. They don't have to like it any more than the Brits. But this idea that British people are different to Americans, of course they're not. You know, it's the same thing. And to be clear, that I didn't mean that like different people in that sense. But you were in the time where you, I guess, created your persona of Boy George and it was there was a fearlessness about your own ev evolution and how did you have that internal power for that but also to create your take your pain and reveal it to the world because that for a young person 
that's opening yourself up in in a huge way that point was in america particularly people were like well we like the song you know they went very gemini because <laughs> there's a gemini you can always see both sides of every situation you're like people call you two-faced but actually you're just a bit wise you know you're like mm, i'm not taking sides and i think at that point it was like i wasn't really kind of doing anything but dressing up I wasn't political, you know, maybe inside. I mean, in, in a way, being yourself is always a massive political act. But I think how I carry myself in the world has always been the same. And I think when I went to America, I wasn't trying to be anything. I was like, I'm in America, let acts different. I was like, I'm in America. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And look how I'm dressed. It's insane. And people were so sweet. You know, they were innocent and sweet. They weren't nasty. Later on, I mean, there was a few places we didn't go to. Let's talk about that for a minute. It's okay, yeah. me. It's like, don't come to Texas. But now, like, it's love. Now there's a lot of love everywhere that there wasn't before they found it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that well, that's great to hear. Where I was concerned, and also, I think then I just was because I was so brazen. I was like, it was like a funny thing. I think to answer your question a bit more sort of detailed in a way was that my dad was a total my dad wasn't just aggressive he was a lot of things he was kind of a great he just had no control over his emotions and the best way to describe my dad my dad was a brilliant man he had the potential to be superman but he just lost his temper all the time and i think I grew out of that you know when i was growing up myself and when i went into showbiz i was very like spiky and <laughs> You know, but then when I went to America, particularly, people were like, we see him. You know, I don't know. I felt like they saw me. They just was like, he doesn't need to explain himself. He's just kind of, you know, they almost like it was weird because my dad was like that. My dad didn't ask the details about a person. My dad didn't even really talk about me being gay. just like, whatever. And, you know, he was a bloke's bloke in a way. But it was like, you, even if you're a cowboy, you can still be nice. Yeah. It was all about having to adopt one view of everything. I think that's what I was saying when I came along. It was like, oh, you know, you don't know me. I come from a similar background. You know, I'm from a working class Irish family. And, you know, I was like, those are all the good things about me. You know, the fact that I've got, you know, four brothers and a sister and I come up in this tough, like, environment, you know, where I think served me quite well when I travel. But also I was always taught manners. Manners were so important as a kid. It was like, you don't say please. You ought to say please all the time. Thank you. Be respectful. Even if you don't agree with someone's point of view, you don't need to be rude. Yeah. So obviously, when I got on the show, when I got into show business, I was like, oh, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was well, like, not living up to that particular rule. As well. But, you know, in terms of being respectful to elders, to, you know, I don't have to hate someone because they got a different political or sort of ideas about this. You know, I think everyone's falling across this rock, you know, in the way they can. I mean, I just, I'm protective of who I am and what I am and all the rest of it. It's not some big, it's not a, your life can't be a cause. It is, either, your life is your life. Yeah. And, it's, and I say to a lot of the audience on stage now, I say, everyone's cool. No one's had a funny turn. It's been a few years. Everyone's still good, right? Anyone's still married? And they cheer. Any divorces? It's fun. Yeah. Fun. And I'll say, why did I even bother? If I'm just, you're all turned out so normal. 
No, I'm sure. Look, I'm sure the tour just uh, being in attendance and the energy that you have, obviously that comes across the screen, but the energy you have, I'm sure it's just a party. I'm sure it's just a lot of fun. Uh, I try to engage the audience sort of emotionally, like, and you can do that with the way you speak. You can do that with the way that you walk. Everything you do is about engaging the audience to be on your side. That's the yeah. starting point. You look forward, you know, I watch a lot of other artists and I think, oh, that's cool. Who did I watch recently? I thought it was really good. Jonas Brothers. I thought that the way they looked at the audience, the way it was a big crowd, the way they were carrying themselves, they look like rock stars. You know, when I see someone who looks like a rock star, I'm always impressed. I'm like, oh, you know what I'm going to tell? I'm going to send you a message to say, babe, on stage you were the best of the night. That's awesome. I mean, that's engaging. I think that's what you try to do live. You kind of go, all right, I want to show off a little bit because, you know, I'm Boy George. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't face these hearts that's like cheekbones. But in my case, it's like, you know what, I'm a little bit of a show off, but not in a in a conceited way. I want to be playful with the audience. I want them to be on my side and I want to talk to them. I talk to them a lot. I mean, the rest of the band get annoyed with me. They're like, are you doing stand-up? I go, no. <laughs> and I want to hear what you've got to say a little bit. Yeah. Say more than hello, London. <laughs> Just like this, the reason why I do this podcast, this series, the story behind the song is because the audience's fans want to hear about these wonderful stories that you and all these great artists have and the genesis of the songs and but not just the songs. It's about the, you know, their lives and how they got to where they are and the serendipity that comes from it all frequently, too, because that's that's one of the themes that I hear all the time with all the great artists is that if this one thing didn't happen and we didn't plan on this happening, you know, those kinds of things. It's Oh, many of those things in my case, but all of the time, I think, all the time. But I suppose these days I think, well, you know, if you arrive smiling, and I don't mean that in a cheesy way, but if you turn yeah. up with the mood, most things are going to roll the way you want them to. The other thing is to write stuff down. Tell yourself on paper, I'm having an amazing gig. I'm having an amazing tour. I'm having an amazing breakfast, whatever it may be. Put it on a piece of paper, stick it in your pocket. Yeah. Get a bill of like breakfast and you go, that was amazing. What was wrong with me? I think just, you know, the way you feed your soul lyrically, musically, what you listen to, all of that stuff is really helpful. Flowers, the moon, all of it's all of it's amazing. You know, and we're kind of, you know, we're just not connected enough to what's going on, you know. And I think it's good to tell people about the story behind, like, oh, well, you know, you really want to hurt me. First of all, the way it was written is interesting because I was listening to a dub record in my friend's living room. I had these two friends who were really a reggae and they were friends of John Moss. And I was hanging out with them in their house. And I had this old reggae tune on. It was just this sweet lover's baseline thing. And I don't know why. I had the lyrics already. This happens a lot with me. Hmm. I write down and I'm like, what am I, you know, it just kind of came out. I just got the hook. Do you really want to hurt me? And I was thinking, does anyone need to hear this? Because <laughs> it was so slow, you know, because I was really into this lover stuff. Like there's a great record. I did a version of everything I own, but the original by Ken Booth is super slow. You sheltered me. But it's like, so really what happened was in that pocket of like, old reggae lovers rock that I was obsessed with, that I grew up with. And I was like, I want to write something like this. But unconsciously, I didn't want to write something that was just another 
you know some sort of beautiful all that stuff's beautiful do you know what I mean because I think if you're in that pocket you can write about the sunshine but you know in my case at 22 I was like well I love this music but I need to say what I need to say yeah and the record was massively successful in all these like Jamaica and places like that like people just embraced me and reggae and so there was a as we were saying earlier, contradictions, right? You're not meant to like that. I'm not meant to be an Elvis fan. Who makes the rules? I'll be a fan of whoever I like. Even Glenn Campbell has said some things about me, and I was like, I don't care. I mean, I fucking love his music. I ain't going to change that. I mean, I just was like, oh, this works over this groove. So then I brought it to the guys, and then we kind of developed it. We did, we did the intro bit in the studio. It was like, Steve Levine, who was our sort of became our fifth member, he was our producer. He was the guy that got us recorded because we would never been recorded. And suddenly we're like, oh, this is what we sound like. How exciting. We did, I was at a nightclub and I saw a friend of mine was doing a performance and Helen Terry was there walking into this performance. And my friend said to me, this is Helen Terry. She's an amazing singer. And I, <laughs> Steve and Lee said, Go on then, sing. And she goes, no. She goes, I'm not performing Seal. You want to hear me sing? Give me a call. That's funny. And then she came into, into the studio and she was kind of just, you know, like we had that little intro of me and that was, oh my God, doing that intro. I wanted to murder everybody. <laughs> I was in there for hours, hours to get that. Give me a chance. I'm not going to get up there now. I do something a bit more gravitational these days. Ah, it's still, it sounds pretty good. It's still beautiful. I, t- I tell you what we don't, well, what we don't do is, you know, obviously we're respectful to the song always. So you'll never lose that. Give me time. It can be lower in this pocket, like quite sweet, soulful. We play around with the sort of more of the space of the song now and people just seem to love it. I haven't had any complaints. Normally if you do something that's like questionable, the audience is like Texas, send you a tweet saying, mm. All of the people saying, oh, it's more feeling now. There's more feeling in it. Yeah. You bring honesty to a thing and then it goes, it takes it to another level of like connection. Because that's all you're ever trying to do is, you don't want to sing, do you want to hurt me to the crowd and make them feel (laughs) unhappy? But you can also tap into that sort of beautiful vulnerability of what people are feeling. Yeah. It might be they've had a drink of wine or whatever. They might, you know, sometimes you do these great gigs at wineries and they have a drink of wine and they're like, takes them to another place because suddenly they're, you know, they're older, they're hopefully wiser because that's, to the journey of a song is such a beautiful thing. You know, people come up to me all the time and say, oh, this, particularly with that song, obviously. A lot of gay kids come up to me and say, oh, that song was like my song when I was a kid at school marriages it's not really something you play at a wedding <laughs> well yeah, yeah I, I guess that's it's not the obvious it's not the most obvious party and it's definitely a divorce song <laughs> yeah that's that's definitely true that's it i mean as the different people saying all that they've you know obviously the different songs resonate in different places but there has never ever been a gig ever 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 in my career so far when the opening of that song Give me time. They literally lose their plot if they have one to start with. It's uh, (laughs) loving, it's, you know, because you're just saying, listen, I know what you're feeling. 
Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Okay, so I want to go back into that. You said you were in a flat. You were in an apartment at the time when you were listening with some friends to some reggae and it just happened to you? Like you just, as you were sitting there with your friends. In those days, I I did write stuff down. Never kept any of it. I'm such a, I hoard unnecessary stuff. The sort of musical relics, I'm throwing them all away. (laughs) (laughs) Idiot. But anyway, I remember writing, I had to really want to hurt me as a kind of poem or some scribble I'd done. Yeah. That was really basically sort of asking the question, give me time to realize Mike Prime. What have I done? What have I done? Let me love and still, well, all right, well, maybe just come back. Let me do this, you know, and it's what you do with love, isn't it? I have danced inside your eyes. How can I be real? It's like, well, you've seen me now. You've seen my true soul. You looked into my soul and you've seen me. So now... What do we do with that? You know, I think all of it is like love is never asked. It's like it's because love is unexplainable. And I think that's what you really want to hurt me is about. Yeah. You want to hurt me? Do you want to make me cry? You know, precious people always tell me that's a step, a step too far. Because I was always being told, oh, you too much. Or, you know, you're just whatever. Like, oh, you, you know, but also, you know, that if someone doesn't love you or if someone, I don't know. I mean, you look back at these things and you think, well, what would I have said differently? What would I have done differently? And some of it, when I'm on stage sometimes, I really think about what I'm feeling at that moment when I do that song. Because I always say to the audience, this song has been on a big journey with me. This song is like, you know, because it made me famous. It broke my heart. It paid for my house. (laughs) I mean, it just is endless. The stuff brought wisdom to me. You know, singing it for all these years, suddenly I'm like, oh, actually, I think I am wiser. So I can sing it. But, but know about it in a so a, such a different way. Yeah. Where you go, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm saying. But, and I'm not, I'm never sort of arms folded with that sort. I'm not folded with any song. You know, sometimes you see an, an art and you think, why are you singing it if you've got a problem with it? Yeah. You've everything like. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's, that's a great way to live, That just doing that. There's beautiful things in the set. Like there's the new songs in the set. We got the song called Letting Things Go, which is what our tour's called. It's 1000%. I have no issue singing something beautiful on stage if I know it's good. You have to trust me on the artist. That's what I do. Yeah. So I'm being, the more truthful I'm being, the more, obviously it's got to be melodic. It's got to be catchy as hell. That's the starting point. No one should be able to, get past the first chorus without thinking, oh yeah, I know this song. Yeah. So I tell you, so I say this, you know this song, it's like, it's Tom Petty, it's this, it's a bit of Sinatra, it's all of these things that you know and love. So I'm not feeding you food you don't like. <laughs> it's not vegan, it's vintage, proper. You know, if I was a carpenter, it'd be an oak table. What we do is very, that's how I see it as well. I think I can't get away from a melody. And a hook. And once I've got something to say, all right, keep going, keep going. One thing about you really want to hurt me, which I think is interesting because your show is about that. What's yeah. interesting? I remember when we put it out, 
I was like, it's too slow. It's too personal. Who the hell is going to listen to this? And when everyone heard it on the radio, it was like, drags. Oh, my God, the career's over. It's even started. And it kind of just was like a train. It just did its own thing. Literally, we were traveling to places like Belgium and Denmark and Sweden. And none of these places had record companies. So when we got there, it was someone's living room in Belgium because they were starting Virgin Europe on the basis of, do you really want to hurt me? It was insane. So, yeah, it's interesting for the audience to know what was going on. And then maybe a year later, we went back to these places and they had offices. But at that point, it was like Mike Oldfield and Culture Club. And we weren't even aware to that point that we were the next big hope for Richard Branson. You know, look what he's done. And that was the journey. He was actually saying, oh, my God, this, we're building these new offices and we're opening it on this. You know, it's interesting about pain. <laughs> well, it it's interesting. Be- you met you mentioned Mike Oldfield and it tubular bells. You know, this was the yeah. song from Yeah. I remember that time so well, you know, with that that album was a great album anyway, but it was huge, huge, huge album, Culture Club. Do you really want to hurt me? Was this weird? I think for me as a person, right? I was like, why does anyone care? Like, why are people so connected to this song? That was a real education in like my own humanity, but also in other people's like what they wanted to hear necessarily, but also like, I don't know, it was like something about my vulnerability and my fragility on that song and just the way I looked. I don't think you can ever separate any moment from its complete experience, the way I looked, how I was on TV, how I was, you know, how I dressed, everything about it. And, you know, what I was, expressing emotionally was very unique to me. It was like, I was telling the world a long time ago, you know, also not just about Pertle being hurt, but also being a bit of an outsider. I'm saying, hey, wait a minute, I'm part of this. You know, why are you locking me out? You know, I've been apologizing for who I am. So do you really want to help me? It was about John, but it was also about the world. And it was also about me, me saying, okay, what do you need to learn? I, when I go see an artist, I want to. After a while, I'm like, all right, enough with the world. I'm like, expose the wisdom at me. Tell me what you've learned from yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. think at current writing, it's all about wisdom. What did, you know, I mean, I love that song. Of course, it's a beautiful song, and I always sing it always in every show. There's never a show where you really let me get axed off the great city. You just go, in this particular instance, we're doing everything, but I'm saying as a rule, even if I'm doing a solo gig, I'm like, no, we got to do that. <laughs> got to do this. There's about five songs we got to do. And where well, maybe, yeah, five that we got to do. And then it's like, for my solo gigs, I'm talking about not for Culture Club. Culture Club is like the whole enchilada. Yeah, every, yeah. So it's all about, and we're lucky because we got loads of great songs. So it's like, it's fun. You do have loads of great songs. And the amazing thing is that your first album was 1982. You were formed in 1981. And only five years later, so after 1981, you broke up in 1986. The the group disbanded then after six top 10 U.S. hits and seven in the U.K., which is pretty incredible that that happened. Going back to the formation of the song, did you know, did it feel like you had lightning in the bottle at the time? Did you know it was special at that time? No. 
I will 100% say to you that when I did that song, I thought, yeah, it's a nice song. Yeah, it should definitely go on the record. Yeah, yeah, it's a good song. But if I sit here and say to you, I knew what it was, then I'm a liar. It was an education to me as well. You know, I was like, oh, wait a minute. So I remember it goes into Virgin. Virgin really gave us, the, it was the publishing deal that was the big thing for us. They wanted to see where we could go writing-wise. And they were the ones that were like, this is the third single, and they didn't believe in it either. I can promise you, promise you, promise you. It was a record that just took on its own life. And, you know, Europe is interesting. Like, Germany particularly, places like Europe where you sort of think, oh, well, they're going to get it. It's a, it's a London emotion. They're not going to get it. And they were the ones that got it first. You know, it was like, you know, and that song, Everywhere You Go, it's like our calling card of, like, we can always do that. And the audience is like, I love this song. Everyone knows it. And it's like, it's like a friend. Yeah. It's like a go, oh, yeah, okay, this is interesting. And it also really opens up that conversation with the crowd. You say, wait a minute, where were you when this was happening? Are you still that person? You know, I, I really love that because I play with them a bit, you know, say, are you holding on to anything you need to let go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's the universe. So the universality of that song is that's what, uh, who knows? I don't know what touches everybody, but I would imagine that's part of it, that everybody just feels that that universality of it all. And going back to what you were saying, the, the most amazing thing about music compared to any other form of medium is that you remember exactly you remember exactly where you were when you listened to that song. And that song brings me back. I, I know exactly where I was at the time. And, and it's, it was just so pervasive. And what's fascinating about it is that that was not your top charting song, even though it's your most iconic song, I would say. And your top char charting song was Karma Chameleon. That hit number one. You, do you really want to hurt me? did not make it to number one. It was number two for weeks because of Billy Jean and Michael Jackson. Happy was the kind of ball in the goal that set up winning the match. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was so like important in terms of establishing who we were. Yeah. What we were about. It's our calling card. It was like, I have a bit of this. I mean, it went to number one in like 36 countries, which was insane. Yeah. You really want to hurt me. But yeah, I think Karma's the one that like, basically, yeah, we kind of were like taking off. The flight was taking off. We got to like, ooh, you know, that we were in a jet. Yeah. <laughs> Karma Chameleon, listen, I'm a great songwriter. I never understand why anyone loves the song because I think that is the thing that people miss, I think, with songwriting is like, if you don't factor in the moment of when it was written, because... I'll be really honest with you. I don't think songwriting is difficult or particularly clever. Hmm. Well, it's about the moment. I think the moment is about taking what you're feeling, finding words from the word bag and going, right, this, oh, this is nice. Yeah, it's all. Oh. But also some of it's instinctual, but like when you're making a poem for other people to listen to, you've got to be a little bit selective about how you put the words together. Yeah. You're always back to like, who are you as a person? How unique are you? Because let's face it, everyone knows the word and, or hurt, or cry. You ain't a genius. What you are is a sort of your own, you know, sort of curator of something. You're creating from this insane menu. And I think sometimes I look at people, I think, widen your search for ingredients because you've got this intense pantry. 
And by the way, I can tell right away when someone's nicked a certain herb. <laughs> oh, that's Nina Simone, baby, all day long. And then it's bark and it goes back and it bounces off everything. But it's yeah. like the uniqueness of that human being is really what the song is about. It's about the same as art. Same thing as art. It's like, what are you feeling? I'm putting it on the canvas. And it will make sense to certain people. And that's the thing about a voice, I think. Because, you know, there are like boring chords you can use. There are boring chords. You say, Why would you use those? It's like being in a bad suit. <laughs> when you first hit, because it, you had pretty much instant success, your first album comes out and it was bam, bam, bam. You had, you know, hit after hit after hit. And how did how did that impact you as a person where you go from somebody who's a relatively private person into the maelstrom of, of the world. One well, of the funniest things, because of the way I looked, you see, I even right up to, do you really want to hurt me? Yeah. Do you hurt me? There was a photo shoot where I was kind of slightly allowed the makeup artist to kind of change me a bit. Before that moment, I was full on Susan in the Banshees. You can Google it. I was like full on, Gasp, heavy, like so much makeup. Because when you're that age, you can take it. So I went to a photo shoot and I was like, the girl was like, mm -hmm, try this. No one, had to, I don't think anyone had told anyone to do it. There was a makeup artist there and she was like, what am I going to do? And I said, okay, then take it off and do what you do. Are you good? She made me look so much like Brooke Shields. It was like, love. It was like, I wanted to, I was like, oh, this is amazing. I love Brooke Shields. Okay, quick. Uh, and that album, you know, came from that. And do you really want to help me? The sleeve, I think, yeah, it was similar. So I think it might have been the same picture. It was like, just, you know, I say I vented myself out of cardboard and glitter. Before then, I was like totally into Susie and the Banshees. I was a full-on Susie lookalike. Like, you know, I loved the long shirts. And this is, you know, they weren't even that famous. They were famous in my house. They came, became more famous, and I just love Susie. In fact, at one point, two stories, she jumped on my back in a club. She goes, I know who you are. You're the guy that pretends to be me. Oh, that's uh, funny. What about if you're pretending to be me? <laughs> was, that, was, like, was that before? Before. Okay. Before fame. Uh, see, that's <laughs> great. Find the picture. That, that there's an interview that I did for Tatler magazine with this guy when I was, I wasn't even thinking about being in a band, I was a punk rocker. He took me to Harrods and then he cooked me lunch, took me dinner, took me into Harrods. It was insane, the reaction in there. And he wrote in the article, oh my God, I found it so offensive the way people were reacting to me. And I was like, get over it, I loved it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so let's not pretend if you run down the street with a pot on your head, dressed as a nun, people aren't gonna make some comment. They're gonna, you have to read the room. You have to read the room in terms of like your own Obviously, I didn't know that when I was 19. I was like, I don't care what you think. I just, when I discovered what it could do for me as a person, you know, dressing a certain way, it's like people just fancied me. Like, oh, you're interesting. Can I buy you a drink? Boom. And it was like, it was almost the opposite of what people think. Being an outsider in certain environments meant like I was in, you know. And also, people who don't dress up don't necessarily hate you because you do. There were lots of people I met that were absolutely beautiful people. They weren't outrageous. They were just regular people, whatever that word means. It's an insulting <laughs> word. Yeah. But people are much more deep than you think. You know, you're the ones judging, not you, but me. I said, you have to be careful not to judge people in the way you're judged. 
Because then you go, wait a minute, well, then how does anything get better? Because just sometimes people don't want to dress up. They don't want to get noticed. That's their choice. But don't be angry with someone because they want to get noticed because it's a short span on the set of kids. Have as much fun as possible, but do it well. No, look, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, it's funny. My kids and I were talking about that, how it's interesting that more people don't don't look at themselves as a piece of art and kind of ornament themselves to the outside world. So I live in San Diego and we're pretty casual people in San Diego. Big cities are transient and lots of people go through and they're hubs for like fame and attention. And most great people, if you look at anyone from Pamela Anderson to Axel Rose to me to Bo, all of them came from outside the city. We never came from the city. I wasn't born in the West End. I was heading to the West End. Yeah. And I think, like, same in America. I've got loads of friends who lived in Nebraska. They moved to New York or they went to L.A. And it's like, you know, they're finding the place that makes them feel the most alive. They're finding their blues in a way. They're like, where's my blues? You know, you know, they get into that vibe without knowing about it. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. You come across as this extremely positive person, which I'm, you just clearly are that. And when you were 20 or 18, 16, whatever, how have you evolved as a person and what helped you evolve? Okay, it's a brilliant question. And the answer to that is a lot of answers, but you don't get older and wiser. You have to choose to get wiser. It doesn't just happen because you hang around. <laughs> Because life is about work. Life is, life is about like, I mean, if you're lucky and you have an amazing life, you know, that's your sort of natural human instinct. If you are lucky, know you're lucky. If you're lucky, know you're lucky. If you've got loads of money, if you've got success, or don't start thinking you're special or different or better than anyone else. You're not. You're just lucky. Lucky, lucky, lucky. And I think that's important to remember. But in terms of my own evolution, I was a reactive person all of my life. Everything I did was a reaction. And I'm happy to have that element of me still intact by when I need it. But I definitely need to use it for different purposes now. Like, you know, I obviously I'm, I've always been a good people reader. There's no one that gets past me, but I get it wrong as well, a lot. So I meet people and think, oh, that's this. And the other then I think, actually, wait a minute. I might be wrong. I've always been forgiving. That's number one. I mean, listen, all of those emotions, you know, rage, anger, sorrow, forgiveness, everything you can think of, art, music, fashion, all of it's kind of, it's really just a way of saying, here's, an, here's a thing that you can look at it like this, or you can look at it in a million ways. It's like you don't, you know, if you're, like people say to me all the time, you anti-Trump, I'm like, what do you think I do all day? <laughs> I ain't got time for yeah. that. Yeah. First of all, we're born on the same day. Hello, that's hilarious. 
Uh, fact, I love it. But the fact is, I am. I'm outside of all of that. I mean, I'm not non-political. Of course, I'm not. But do I need to stand, go online, and argue with people about it? I need to do it and be it and have that in my soul. I can't just go around going, "Oh, let me shout out loud what I am," and I don't do any of it. So, hmm. I've got a song at the moment that, where I talk about that. You know, eating, eating, basically eating shit and spouting wisdoms. Like, you know, what you say ain't what you do. I think it's just, you know, the thing about the internet is it's massively powerful, you know, and it's like you look at it and you think, oh, this is so interesting, but it drags you into a kind of limited arguing space where you think, I'm bigger than this, mate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm bigger than the thing, you know, and without sounding like, you know, of course, that you know, it's about what you do in your life. So the thing about me now is if I meet people, I'm always nice. I'm not like, I mean, listen, I've got a radar for craziness and like, oh, they, they look a bit drunk or whatever. But if people come up to me and they're nice, I love being Boy George. So there isn't like, I don't want to be Boy George. I always want to be Boy George, whether Boy George is dressed like this or whether he's got no makeup on. I'm always going to be George, right? You get the picture that, you know, if you want a picture of me without makeup on, that's fine too. Just don't be disappointed. <laughs> so I think for me, I just realized a few years ago that like being nice to people was actually massively benefit to me. It was like, it ain't about what they do, right? It ain't about what they're doing. It's about what you're doing. It's like, what do you, don't roll your eyes or someone else from a photo or, tart or act like you're in a hurry. <laughs> None of that is helpful. And I have to say to anyone famous, when you remove that kind of anxiety from the room, people treat you very differently because you're not walking in with a, with a you know, cloak of anxiety. Don't look at me. It's like, well, don't go out then. Hmm. <laughs> if you're going to go out, remember your Whoopi Goldberg, or just don't go out. Whoopi Goldberg always says, when I go out of the house, I'm so me, I can't escape it. I mean, so I don't look like this, so I can slip by all the time. I don't get stopped a lot. But when really? I'm Lovely. Always, 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 always. Yeah. Persons like aggressive or they're pulling me or whatever or calling me names, then I run away like any normal person would. But actually, I love being me. So the involution is I don't go out kind of, I've got a good radar. I don't go out like looking for arguments or being, you know, I'll have fun with someone if they want to start. A woman in the shop the other day thought I was Dave Stewart and would not have it. Wait, she thought went, you were David Stewart? I was, I was in, I was in a, a shop buying some stuff and this yeah. woman was I had glasses, like sunglasses on. And she goes, I know you, you live in Crouch End. I goes, no, I live in Hampstead, it's closed. And she goes, you're in the rhythm, you're with rhythmics. And I was, I was like, do you think I'm Annie Lennox? Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, it could be, you know, more than like her than Dave. Anyway, she insisted I was Dave and I laughed. And I, even when I told her I'm boy George, yeah. just like, I was like, baby. Have an amazing life. You got the wrong person, and whatever in my life, but it was hilarious because I think I just walk around laughing a lot. So people might think I'm a bit of an idiot because I'm like always like laughing at the things I think. Sometimes I think things, and then I instantly go, "What are you doing?" Yeah. Well, I I, I love the fact that you what you said. I love being Boy George. I think that's so that's. It's wonderful that you are so grateful about that and that you- Imagine if I wasn't happy. I mean, I was for a long time, kind of yeah. a bit like, I just was at odds with what this person does to my life. So once you kind of get over that that's also a thought concept, it doesn't help, it's not productive. It's like, no one's going to walk away from someone miserable and go, my spouse record. <laughs> yeah, well, true that. <laughs> 
if you're sweet and they might have not even been a fan they go wait i'm gonna check out his music i tell people about what i'm doing i'll say i'm doing this i've released 47 tracks in the last two years on spotify i've been doing this thing called 60 for 60 for my birthday and i've continued doing it i'd like to drop like six albums on one day like a lunatic like a dance one a reggae one rock and roll one that's just completely avant-garde, like annoying, weird poetry. I don't know. And then one other, I don't know. I really want to do that. And I just have to find another lunatic to kind of agree with it. But you have to get it ready. So I'm getting it ready as a concept. I'm going to put the whole thing together and say, right. That's that's excellent. Six for 60. Six for 60. I haven't finished the 60. I keep getting messages from fans saying, because I've got my own label, Boy George Presents. So people are like, where's the net route? I said, wait a minute, it's coming. I'm just doing so much massive. I've got a show next week in France. I'm doing on my own as a solo show. So I'm playing all new music and then a few of the hits. But I'm basically breaking into another players that are going to work with me. And we're going to France. I'm really excited about it. I've written a beautiful song called Sweet Jesus, which is about my mother. So I lost my mother recently. So I've been... Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, no, I mean, she was a beautiful person and she used to say Jesus. Everything was sweet Jesus. The Jesus, that's what the Irish call Jesus. Yeah. Great song, you know, where it's just so Irish. I can't even tell you. It's just the most Irish things that have come out of me. And I'm like, thanks, mom. I think it might be my best song I've written in years. And I write a lot. But I like the opening line, my life will never be a revenge against you. Did not know it was fate, but now that I do... Hmm. Uh. it's like setting you up for a you know a kind of and just you know i sing about Sinead on it i say i love you Sinead but i question the pope sometimes yeah (laughs) what a great artist she is oh the best amazing yes i mean you know just i went to see her i mean even putting that in the song she'd probably be annoyed (laughs) okay so 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 george i want to ask you what are you most proud of I think my ability to change has been really something that I am proud of, just in terms of how I, even at the moment, you know, you're talking about Do You Want to Hurt Me, which was about John Moss. I've got this big lawsuit going on with John right now. Nobody wants me to talk about it. And it's fine. I don't need to it's the, don't talk about it. It's like, well, it is happening. It's like it's raining outside. Let's pretend it's not. But that song, you know, I've been able through this whole traumatic period of just going, I don't, I don't actually hate him. I don't wish him harm. I don't want to don't want to hurt him weirdly. And I just, yeah, I want it over with. I want it kind of done so I can get on with being me. Yeah. Being as fabulous as I can be. But in the meantime, I don't stop being fabulous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like when you're going through stuff like that, you just go to yourself, right? Let's up my consciousness in this moment. Let me take this to a new level rather than being like, oh my God, you've hurt me. Or this, you know, back to the song again, which I think is. Amazing. So I've got I got two songs about John. One is called Dirty Little Limited Company, and one is called Watching the Lotus Bleed. So I may end up with a with a Marvin Gaye album. Like you know, you know, it's like it's interesting. You might have given me an idea today on this show. You might have. That's given me that's some- what we do. No, but the thing is, it's like hold on a minute because I think this is interesting because obviously I'm a writer. I love to write, and I'm always conscious when I'm writing that. Okay, let's, we might need a bit of Marvin Gaye in here, but be careful how you do it, but just some of that soul, you know. But with what I've got to say, I think that's the interesting thing. I think that's why Culture Club was interesting and remains interesting because 
obviously we're paying homage to Smokey Robinson and, and all of those amazing soul singers and stylistics, Best Land of Pips, massive fan. All of that stuff was in our music, but then we had this kind of slightly naive way of putting it together because we weren't players like the Muscle Shoals. And we weren't James Brown's band. We were us kids from London going, we love that, but we also love Bowie and we love punk rock. And, oh, how do we do this? Let's make a jumper. Yeah. <laughs> and you end up with what we've got, you know, which is a lunatic sound. It is quite rare, actually, to have such an eclectic soundscape. And it just shows, again, I, I listed just some of the things that you do as an artist, and it's the breadth of the palette, which is quite remarkable. And so given all of this, because you the stories, you have three autobiographies, and they keep coming, so the stories keep coming. So, so George, who would you like to... This, is, this question's for my daughter. Who would you like to play you in the feature film that will inevitably come? Someone, not necessarily someone famous, not necessarily someone who looks like me, but they have to have the essence of me. I mean, there's been a few suggestions and while I like all of them, I am like, find someone that's like totally believable because I am a contradiction. I am this very, unusual hybrid of like queen and builder <laughs> and builder you know, builder queen <laughs> and you know it's like because i'm not anyone's cliche and the fact is everyone especially at the moment everyone's really into the lgbtqr plus thing and of course i am too but why in your net in terms of what that's about because that ain't just about me portraying a characteristic that isn't me for the sake of what's cool. <laughs> Find a real person who can act, who understands who I am as an Irish man, as a gay man, as what I've been on the journey. It doesn't have to be someone straight or gay, it doesn't matter. Just someone believable. Yeah. You know, if I, when I hear a singer, I'm never ever like fooled by what they're playing. I'm never like, that isn't like so-and-so, but whether they do it, in a way that just makes me go, oh yeah, you are the real deal. Why it's good to talk about Sinead O'Connor because whatever's going on with her as a person, when she gets on stage, it's like, you know, it's like a fire in her belly. Oh I yeah. Years ago, well, maybe longer than that, but I was like, she, I believe her. <laughs> That's all I want on stage. If you were to go, I believe him, even if I'm having a good time, I don't want to look like I'm forcing myself to have a good time. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, Sinead O'Connor, again, it's just one of my favorites. And I just remember when she came out with Lion and the Cobra and she was, I think, 17 or something like that. And to be able to write a song like Troy, it's unbelievable. I'm back with me on my last dub album, which is online. I did an album called This Is What I Dub Volume 1 and I got people to reinterpret some of my songs. Some of the songs I don't even sing on. They're like, I maybe do a bridge. But with Sinead, we did a cover of a Yoko Ono song called Death of Samantha. And she came into the studio and she was unbelievable. <laughs> so, well, this song is such a beautiful song anyway. I mean, my version of it is also on another album. This is what I do. But that particular song, I sang with Sinead. And I remember just thinking, oh, I could spend so long in the studio with you. I don't know what I would come out with if I was able to. I was able to squeeze that lemon to the point where I got every bit of juice out of it, but uh, it was amazing working with her. She's just, I actually, as a singer, sometimes even go, oh, 
And I go, oh, that's a bit of Sinead. I actually yeah. recognize that, you know, when I'm writing, Morrissey's in there 1,000%. You know, Patty Smith, you know, obviously Bowie's in there, Gladys Knight's always in there. Can't get as high as the stylistics anymore. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, obviously, all the obvious people like Nina yeah. Simone, is, all musicians worship Nina Simone and Prince. Yeah. Our show just now sold like all my princes went in two minutes. <laughs> I was like, boom, I've got this picture called Purple Rain and it went in seconds. They were like, you need to do more. I was like, they're all gone. So that was good. Bowie sold out, Prince sold out, and I sold a few Madonnas. Well, uh, okay, so I, before I let you go, where can we find all of that art? Because if you go to the official Culture Club website or your website, oh, go ahead. Yeah, some stuff on my Instagram. I post things intermittently because I'm kind of doing it all the time. I don't stop. You know, it's insane. I just don't stop. I'm always at something. I'll, I'm working. I'll show you something quickly because I'm working on the read one way. <laughs> yeah okay for those of you who are listening george is now going to show me something one of his pieces of art amazing <laughs> wow that's cardboard, and that's nico and then a few of the others i'm gonna, i'm still working on it but it's all on cardboard god that's and great kind of fragile you know i love the whole concept of recycling and putting things out there that are you know part of the environment cardboard is such a porous fabric for an artist like it just takes paint so brilliantly but you can't because i draw everything by hand i don't use computers everything's by hand it's just like at school it's the same process i would much rather have control of it at that point and then i might computerize it afterwards and mess around with it but once i, I always want the lines of a sort of fragile human sort of mistakes you know loads of mistakes like you're singing like when you're singing like sometimes you're like okay i can get away with that i don't sound like i'm being murdered wait a minute that's quite interesting because if you tune things too much you lose the soul you know yeah so george my last question to you what what music is moving you right now what's on your playlist most of my own, I have to be really honest. <laughs> oh, that you love your art. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm kind of a writer. So, like, I watch people more to kind of go, right, I would never do that. Oh, that's cool. I watched a George Michael gig the other night. It's so beautiful. And he did a few things. I was like, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it in my way, something like that, but not the same. But what was interesting, actually, is how many reference points we have together. Like things he was showing, like all over my arms, Susie and the Banshees, he had Divine on there, he had John, it just had everything on there. I was like, oh, it's, it's like it, we think a lot alike. You know, it was such an interesting thing to go, isn't it a shame at 62 I realised how much we had in common? I was like, God bless him. But yeah, I, I watched people to learn about what I should do. I'm trying to think like new stuff is always difficult because I'm always going back to old stuff like the slits and the banshees and polystyrene. A lot of my art is about celebrating all these mad people that no one else knows about. You know, like Pink Military, one of my favorite Liverpoolian bands in sort of late 70s. They've got stuff online like, do animals believe in God? It just is something about it is a rawness. It's like, I like stuff that feels like it's out of the pocket, like out of the industry. Like, cause you know when something's a bit geared towards like, oh, I've got to make myself right for radio. Or I've got to make myself, and I'm not a big fan of clever songwriting, like well-crafted pop songs get on my nerves. Ah. Unless they're good. Unless they're really good. Like 
occasionally one will slip through and you go, oh, actually, I like that. That's yeah. good. That's, I mean, but actually, when you're dealing with complexity and people are telling you the story and they're like angry and they're and even laughing or there's a joy that's connectable, that to me is, you don't have to sing in tune or be perfect. Bob Dylan's got an amazing storytelling voice. I mean, I'm a massive fan. You know, Bowie wasn't a sort of strict singer in, in a sense. So yeah, I love all those things. You know, I remember once performing with Rufus Wainwright. It was a it was a concert in Canada, and I was like doing this song um, from Paul and Best, "My Man" or something. You know, "My Man." Yeah. And I remember going out, and I was so nervous because this guy was like a theatre player, and he was trying to push in the notes, trying to get me in a pocket. I was like. No, 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 I can't do that. Don't to be pure. Go away. Stop telling me the yeah. notes. Get it. I went out on stage and I started singing this song and full of panic, sort of fear, thinking, oh, God, I'm so rubbish. I can't believe how embarrassed I am. And I went off stage, went into my dressing room, and somebody wrote on Twitter, people get ready. Boy, George just came on and sang like little Jimmy Scott. And I was like, I went and listened to him. And I'm like, oh, and you know, it's like, you know, he was this. Do you know who little Jimmy Scott is? I don't. Oh my God. Well, there you go. I don't. You, little Jimmy Scott sang that one. When did you leave heaven? Such a beautiful song. He was Billy Holiday's favorite singer, allegedly, but why wouldn't he be? Because he was so good. He was so much. He was singing up until he was in his 90s. Wow. I'll check it out. I'll check him out. Gave me the massivest compliment and the hours I'll listen to. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? I'm doing on, you know, I'm releasing stuff all the time on Spotify under Boy George, not because I'm in Composition with Culture Club, because I'm not, but uh, it's like people tend to go for nostalgia in a way, and I think nostalgia is a bit of a racket. <laughs> well, I was listening, and, and then I'm going to let you go, but uh, I was listening to the only song that I, well, I, I didn't look on Spotify, but at least on, on your website, I was listening to quite an endless loop what would you call unreasonable? And it's just a great, oh, it's a great groove. It's on, it's on Spotify. Yeah. What would you call unreasonable? What would be problematic? Yeah. I give you my dollar baby, even if I never had it. Yeah. yeah. A lot of stuff like that. And I've actually just done a song that I'm waiting to put out called Lazy Days, which is total in that same pocket. It's like a soulful, these lazy days, is it free? Lazy days, like a real Marvin, beautiful. And I say some really funny things in it. You know, I say like, lose some weight, I don't care. Get yourself back in fashion. So it's really like soulful, but it's got this funny London, like hilarious, like I talk about my teeth in it. I say, I fix my teeth and now I smile. <laughs> Your fake ass teeth. I'm like, oh my god, my teeth changed my life. Ah, oh, that's funny. Well, look back. You know, right. So yeah, I'm always talking about what's actually going on, and I think when I was a kid, you know, I was doing it instinctively. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Now I'm like, right. What do you care about? So when I'm in that moment trying to write a song, I just get out of my own way because if I'm rigid in any way, because obviously I can always call on Marvin Gaye or Nina Simone or one of those cats or Dylan even just the way phrases sings. Even people like Morrissey are like, I love the way he just kind of lives, you know, delivers it like it doesn't matter, but it's the most important thing in the world, you know? You know what I mean? The more you ignore me, the closer I get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Utterly, it's the same with Sinead. She just tells you what she's feeling.
And sometimes it really hits. And I think that's what you're looking for as a writer all the time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, listen, George, wonderful. You're going, you're on tour or going on tour and you're going to be hitting the States later on in the year, which is going to be wonderful too. Let me do what I do, kids. I'm good at it. Uh, see, I love that. I love the energy and confidence of it all. But George, it's wonderful to have you on the story behind the song and congrats on everything. But I really enjoyed this. You know, you're, you're delightful. You can always tell if someone's in a bad mood. Artists are the worst, aren't they? But like, I mean, I see interviews sometimes. I think, why did you even go? You know, I've always got to remember as an artist, right, your job is to entertain, right? But of course, you don't want to be moronically, like, have no opinion. You're like, all right, I've worked on this a lot. I've done this for years. Yeah. I, you know, I will always sing to you what I know is good. I won't ever deliver anything that's rubbish. I ain't going to feed you bad food. I love it. What a great way to end the interview. Thank you, George. That was Boy George of Culture Club sharing the story behind his breakout song, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, from the band's 1982 debut album, Kissing to be Clever. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti. That's P as in Peter, C like cat, S like Sam, A like apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, Y like yellow, and at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. Make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.